0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. I'm going to start uh, pretty heavy. And so I just want us to go to prayer. Uh, Before we jump in, I'm going to ask you a pretty uh, tough, reflective question as we get uh, kicked off this morning. We're in the book of Judges. Um, So it's right after the beginning in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Judges is where we're at. Um, If you want to find that as we go to pray. But but let's go to the Lord. Um, Father, we just... Um, come into your presence right now and ask that you would um, come into our midst, come into our hearts, come into our minds. Sometimes it's hard to get to our hearts because our hearts are hard. Sometimes it's hard to get to our hearts because we're blind to what's happening there. Uh, We reveal things about us. Um, You say that your word is like a mirror. I pray that we wouldn't just not look at it and walk away and forget what we see, but that you would help us to see. Help us to see. Help us to hear. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to ask you today, I told you it's going to be a hard question, uh, but what's the hardest thing you've ever been through or hardest thing you've ever done? Just think about that. You don't have to share it. Um, You don't have to look at the person next to you like, what are you going to say my hardest thing is? Just think. Just think. What's the hardest thing you've ever been through or the hardest thing that you've ever done? I was reflecting on that myself. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing some sermon prep. I got a little distracted. I started journaling. I ended up journaling um, the hardest things I've been through over the last 16 years of being a pastor here at this church. And it's a really helpful exercise. It's not like the most encouraging exercise, um, but I would encourage you to do it because you end up seeing some things that maybe you didn't see while you were in the midst of what was happening. One of the things I saw in my own journey was that it seemed like the suffering came in waves. Now, there's always good, there's always bad. So understand that. Like there's always, you know, somebody dies and there's a baby being born. So there's funerals to do and there's hospitals, visits to go celebrate where there's balloons, right? So dark clothes, there's people getting married, you got white clothes, like all kinds of different things happening simultaneously and our lives function like that too. There's difficult things happening, there's good things happening, but then there's seasons where it seems like one or the other is more prevalent. What I th- realized is... But things seem to come in waves in my life. Or there's multiple things at once. And so it's not one hard thing that I could write down. If someone asked me the question, I just asked you. It's the season where there were multiple things that took place. And then as I stepped back, and part of my benefit of kind of doing that exercise was, I saw that oftentimes God would do things physically around me that were almost like prophetic to what was going to happen spiritually in me and some of the other stuff that would take place. And so I don't know if that's true for you or not, but I was just then thinking about, well, what's going on in my life right now? Well, this past summer, I had multiple hard things physically take place um, kind of in a row. I was doing this project out in my backyard. I haven't talked to you much about that. Um, But there's different types of personalities when you go to do a project. How many of you here read all the instructions before you put something together when you buy that thing? Oh, we love you. I don't identify with you, but I love you. I'm glad you're here. Um, Pastor Dave preaches sometimes too, and so he'll get that. And um, Then there's uh, people that the kind of people that when they open a Christmas present, it's like the paper's in the way. Blah, they're not the, like, oh, slowly savor this experience. And so we've got both in our family. Um, I know some of you that do that, where you're planning out a project and you've got six months and a whiteboard and color-coded and who's coming to do what you've hired and what you're going to do yourself and who are the helpers and what tools do you need. And then there's people like me. (laughs) Yeah, we need to do this project. And so what will happen if? And then I just try lots of stuff and see what happens. And so... I remember one night, I'm on my backyard, it's like 11 o'clock at night, I'm supposed to move some heavy stuff, probably should have had a couple people helping me. I tried leverage, that didn't work. I tried rolling, that didn't work. And so sometimes you got to put your back into it. That works to move the thing, but I also got a hernia. That wasn't good. But I felt like I could live with the hernia. I told my wife about it, she's a nurse, she's like, you've got to go see the doctor. I'm like, I am a doctor, but at any anyway, rate, different story. Um and joke that continually happens at our house, I'm not a medical doctor, um, and so she tells me that, and so I'm, you know, I'm just going to tough it out, and I'm not going to deal with that. I, did I tell you the story about the tree going down in my front yard this past summer? Tell you guys that? Yeah, a couple of you, yeah, three people were here that Sunday, got it, all right, I'm going to use that <laughs> tree story next week, all right, got it. Um, So long story short on the tree story is a tree came down from one of my neighbor's yards to the other neighbor's yard, and in between was my house, just missed my house, Uh, laid across my front yard. It's about 40-foot long tree. I call my insurance company. They're worthless. Um, I've been paying them for a decade, and I call them on a Friday, oh, there's nobody out there on Friday. I was like, I'm paying, how many thousands of dollars have you taken from me? But anyway, um, we can be there on Monday. That's not gonna work. Can't get trapped in my house for uh, the whole weekend. And so neighbors come over, Vern Kivett, who knows how to use a chainsaw, comes over and also an elder at our church. And uh, we're out there. And so you've got, just picture this, teachers and engineers and retired guys and pastors and consultants. We are like lumberjacks for the day. It's like raining. There's chains, power tools. Some people may have brought adult beverages. If you've got a problem with that because of offensive Christian or like a safety issue, just email my neighbors. And so they're out there. (laughs) Guys are drinking beer, grunting, scratching, tools are going. And so one of my neighbors is a Marine. I don't want him to think I'm, I'm a wimp. And so I'm grabbing biggest stumps I can grab. And I'm lifting heavy stuff isn't a good idea when you have a hernia. I realized that lifting heavy stuff and walking with it is a worse idea. <laughs> and so then I realized, I think my wife's right. That happens often. And uh, I like, I need to go to the doctor. So I go to the doctor. He tells me I have a hernia. Says I have to get surgery. I'm like, aren't there like some core exercises? No, surgery. All right, what does surgery look like? Well, it's outpatient. I'm like, that's all I heard. I didn't hear anything after that. So I didn't talk to many people about it. And it was like a Wednesday, I was having surgery on a Monday. As a Wednesday, I said to my wife, I like, I have outpatient surgery on Monday. Not like, what? She works. And so she's like, well, how are you going to get home? I was like, I'll Uber. <laughs> yeah, all the ladies are laughing. The guys are like, what's the problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so she's laughing at me. And uh, she ended up taking the day off. And she took me. When we got there, the nurse was like, we were talking to her. And I said, well, I didn't make a big deal about this. So this isn't that big of a deal, right? And I said, I was going to just Uber home. And she looked at me like, you're an idiot. She didn't say that, but... <laughs> I, said that, and I won't get into the whole conversation, but I'm like, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Gonna, I, don't, I won't take any cash. What's the Uber driver going to do? Drop me off? So you got a drugged up pastor walking through a bad part of town. That's a funny story, right? At any rate, so I won't give you all that, but I go get the surgery. It was a bigger deal than I thought. I was scheduled to have lunch. I remember I see my friend, Alan Folkrod, my elder at our church. I was supposed to have lunch with him the next day. Don't do that. That's a bad idea. If you ever have that surgery, it was so humbling when I got home, I'm not only am I shuffling like an old man, like to go everywhere. I had to borrow a pink stool for my kids' upstairs bathroom that they used to use to brush their teeth when they weren't tall enough. I had to put that next to my bed, climb up on that, roll into the bed, and then when I get out, it's like, how did I get so stiff? Shuffle everywhere. Two weeks later, I go to the surgeon for a checkup. I'm like, yeah, is it okay to like do stuff now? And he said, oh, athletes, they do stuff like three days later. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've been good. I'm good. See ya. <laughs> Oh man, it's humbling. All because of a, so one bad decision and then another earth, pride and then humility comes and uh-oh, this is the physical stuff. What's coming? Hmm. I don't know what it's like for you when there's hard things or what the themes are, but for me it's when it's multiple together. I don't know why always the hard things happen. Sometimes it's because of our sin, bad decisions. Sometimes it's because of other people sin. Sometimes it's because we live in a broken world. But I do know this. During hard times, God changes hearts. And that's what we're going to see today in Judges chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, uh, we're going to start reading in Judges chapter 3 and verse 12. That's because Pastor Dave uh, left us at verse 11 last week when he was talking about the first judge in the book of Judges. And remember, these judges aren't like uh, judicial judges, typically. They're military leaders. His name was Othniel. And Pastor Dave was showing us that when we dabble in disobedience, it leads to destruction. And he showed the, the cycle of... The Life Cycle Spiritually of the Nation of Israel, which many of us will be able to see in our own lives. And it goes like this. Um, It starts off with that usually we're doing okay in our relationship with God, but then we get deceived. And so we've talked about idolatry. And when we talk about idolatry, we're not talking about worshipping little statues. That's pretty irrelevant to us and to most of the Bible, in fact. We talk about whenever we put something in the place of God that's a created thing. We worship creation rather than the creator. That's idolatry. And the reason why that happens is because that created thing deceives us. It promises us something we want. Usually it's control and we can negotiate with our idols. We'll talk more about that next week. We can't negotiate with God. He tells us how it is and then how, this is how the relationship works. And when we go outside of that, we're deceived. And that deception leads to disobedience. And that disobedience ultimately leads in destruction and the Lord willing to desperation. That's the cycle we see in Israel And then God sends a deliverer. They're broken deliverers, and they all point us to the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. Amen? And when Jesus comes in, there's forgiveness and renewal, freedom and fulfillment. But in Israel, hopefully not in your life, what happens is then we get fooled again by the false gods, and then deceived, and it goes through the cycle again. So we've seen some of that cycle last week, but look where we pick up in verse 12 of Judges Chapter 3. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a moment. What was the evil in the sight of the Lord? There's a lot of ways that I could talk to you about that. I hope that we'll be honest to what was happening there and and accurate to what's taking place and still see what God's showing us just in this one passage. That it was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord strengthened Eglon. So who strengthened Eglon? Okay. Okay. So let's see who he is. The king of Moab against Israel. Oh. See, sometimes what happens in our lives is we say, God, why are you allowing this? And God wants to say back to us, allowing it? I'm causing it. The Lord strengthened the king of Moab against his people, Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. "Well, he doesn't do that in the New Testament. Old Testament and New Testament verse. You can Google it and get different references. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's the sin that's the problem. There's no king in Israel. So this is a time before they had a king. God's plan was he would be their king. The king of kings and lord of lords, they'd be different than all the other nations. But what they did is they said, you know what? We want to be like the other nations. Their compromise turned into cultural conformity. Their cultural conformity turned into chaos. Remember, there's a whole generation, chapter 2, verse 10, that doesn't even know the Lord because of their compromise with the culture. But the root of all of that was everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's pride. That's the ultimate act of arrogance is that you know better than God, that you are the exception to how all of this works for every human throughout all of human history, but not you. Talk about the epitome of arrogance. And I can talk to you about all their sins. And we have all the same sins, but the root is the issue. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay. And then God is the one they're actually in battle with. Not Moab. No, God strengthened Moab so that Israel would lose. Because they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse 13, he, he, talking about Eglon, the fat king of Moab, we'll get to that in a minute. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palm. So think... Palm Beach, you know, think Miami, City of Palms, uh, a.k.a. Jericho in the Bible. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Wow. That's not a short time. Let me be really clear before I tell you some of the sins that it would mean to be able to serve the king of Moab and the Amalekites. You saw these different people here, the Amorites and all these ites that are in the Bible. We can talk about who they worship, but... The sin is everyone did what was right in their own eyes, but everyone didn't do the same thing. that's, That's where I want to be fair and honest about what's happening here. So I can talk to you about, you know, the God Moloch and how you were supposed to bring your firstborn child as a sacrifice so that God would bless you with financial prosperity for your convenience and for financial gain, kill your kid, okay? I can talk to you about... How there was human sacrifices. The, the Moabite God required human sacrifices. Self-cutting was one of the ways you worship. Ritual prostitution. There was sexual morality. There's incest. There's all those things. And then I can talk to you about what we do in America. And we think, we live in dark days, just so you know. Many of us are fooled and deceived into thinking if these are difficult days in America because of inflation. Or Christians are being marginalized. Or whatever political div- division that's taking place. What do you think history is going to say about us? Like There's a lot of stuff happening when Moabites are leading Israel. Every Israelite's not doing the same thing, but here's what's characteristic of all of them. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So we as a nation, since 1973, Roe v. Wade killed 63 million babies. Child sacrifice? You think they're going to talk about that in history? Or are they going to worry about this like little segment where interest rates are 2 to 7? Don't be deceived. Don't be naive. Yeah, but we, not Incest. incest. Um, Sexual abuse is way more prevalent than most of us want to acknowledge. And many of us have this idea, like you know, maybe your kid's gonna get taken. Do you know that children that are sexually abused, only 10% is by strangers? It depends on which study you look at, sometimes it's over 90%, but like 90% are people they know. And the younger they are, the more likely that's a family member. Okay, we can bury our heads in the sand and be like, oh, I'm watching the news and the media and whatever. Okay, but maybe there's more happening than what we're being told. Uh, maybe there's more happening that we want to acknowledge. 10 to 20% of Americans cut themselves or harm themselves intentionally in some way as a way to deal with their pain. Oh, we don't have false gods that we do this. You're looking for a deliverer? Escape? Who are you going to? Because Jesus isn't telling you to do that. See, It's not the symptoms. Those are symptoms. The symptoms aren't different for us than for them. But the point is, everyone just is right in their own eyes. And it produced hard times. Now, there's a remnant too in Israel. There always is. It's being faithful to the Lord. A big problem, and we'll get into this more next week. A big problem, and this is plaguing the American church, by the way, is their syncretism. Is that many of them still professed to follow Yahweh and then found things that the idols had in common with God, blended those things together, and then called that following God. Hmm. Uh, anybody heard of the prosperity gospel? Would that ever be born in any nation other than America? How arrogant of us. That your wealth somehow is indicative of your relationship with God in spite of all, blessed are the poor. Like, come on. Because we've got to read the Bible. Uh, Christian nationalism, listen, I love America. I love being here, all the freedoms we get. I'm a patriot. But when you make that part of Christianity, that ain't part of Christianity. And when the news starts to appeal to you on, if you're a Christian, you'll... Um, is that in the Bible? It's called syncretism. We can do it with lots of other stuff. We will next week. <laughs> Come. <laughs> but the issue everyone did was right in their own eyes, and what does God say about that? And the people of Israel it talks about all of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord because of their arrogance, and so now they're fighting against God. But here's the good news about that. Hard times are an opportunity for heart change. That's our first point. Hard times are an opportunity for heart change. And these are hard times. Whether you acknowledge it or not, they're hard times. I heard a, a great quote by Martin Luther King Jr. a couple of weeks ago. I heard a police officer was giving a speech and said this quote really struck me. It says this, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And that's great because these are times of challenge and controversy. The hard part about that quote, it's still times of comfort and convenience. Ooh. So that's going to play into what's happening here in Moab. And we see, you know, verse 12, really, the key to that first point that I'm making there. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the Lord is the one who strengthened the king of Moab because that's what God told them was going to happen if they compromised with the culture. And as a parent, you ever... You ever wanted to say, you're probably more mature than me, so you don't say it, but I told you so, or a friend, or whatever, or maybe a nicer way is, uh, what did I tell you? Like, you're kind of, it's not really a question, it's more of a statement, but tell me that I'm right, is what you're asking, what did I really tell you? Like, you'll say to your, I'll say to my girls, you know, when they're younger, especially like, hey, don't pull your sister's hair, and then, you know, you hear the sister scream from the other room, and mom is so gracious, she comes in and goes, what happened? Like, you don't know, honey, you don't know? Hold you some Anyway, I think the narrator of, of Judges here, many people think it's Samuel. We don't know for sure who wrote this book, but he's got to be at a spot now where it's like, come on, y'all. Like we've seen this theme and God said this was going to happen. I just told you about what they, and there's a whole generation and, and God's going to use the things that you're worshiping to reveal that you're not worshiping him in your heart. And so the context of the book, remember the context of the book is the book of Joshua. And so you've got to go read the whole book of Joshua. But the beginning of Judges starts with, and Joshua died. And, and right before that, in Joshua chapter 23 and 24, it's a really weird transition of leadership where Joshua knows he's going to die. And so he gives these commands in Joshua chapter 23. And in Joshua chapter 24, he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And the nation says, and so are we. And you'd think that it'd be like, all right, a thousand hallelujahs. Let's go. Time to worship. And, and Joshua says, Are you sure? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we're in. We're all in. And he's like, you can't have false gods and do that. Yeah, we're in. God's the one who delivered us. He's, you know, crossed the Jordan. We're, in, we're with him. Then put away your false gods. And it, it depends on the tone that you read in the text of whether he's being real rough with them or it's like, come on, guys, come on. But either way, what you're getting is the wisdom of a sage. He's at the end of his life. He doesn't say this, but... It feels to me like he, they won't listen to him and he's kind of like, all right, y'all are gonna have to deal with it. I'm out of here. See you. <laughs> he said, I'm gonna die. And then the next part of the passage is about him dying. And But I know, but I'm telling you something I know and I don't, I don't want you. It's better for you if you're gonna worship your idols to not claim to be worshiping God because that's gonna be real rough on you. He disciplines those he loves. It's better, you just run after the idol, let the idol ruin you. That'd be better. Oh. <sighs> And he knows because he's lived it. It's not just battle tested like he read it in a book. He, he's experiencing his relationship with God. Do you remember when Joshua first leads the Israelites into the promised land? The first place that they come to is a place called Jericho. Anybody know the story? Jericho, you know that one? The battle strategy is a marching band. Do you remember that? It's like march around the walls one time for six days, and on the seventh day, seven times. And then at the end of that, I want you to blow some trumpets and scream. And I'd be like, if I was Joshua, and then, like, when do we get our ARs? Like, what's that? What are you talking about? That's, a, that's like a fun prank on a sibling. I'm going to distract you, and, and I'm going to yell at you. and That doesn't sound like a sound battle strategy. But it works. Because the Lord's the one that's fighting for them. And the walls come tumbling down in Jericho, And there's an incredible picture of the gospel because we talked about a lot the first week how this isn't ethnic cleansing when he pushes all the Canaanites out of town and it's not imperialism. The Canaanites have had plenty of time to repent and turn to God. It's a picture of the gospel. Judgment's coming. And everyone who hasn't called upon God is going to experience God's wrath. But if you want to know it's not ethnic, there's a woman, Rahab. You want to know it's not based on your righteousness? She's a liar and a prostitute. Every time she's mentioned in the New Testament three times, it's good Because she had faith in God. And so he spares Rahab and her family. Everything else is wiped out. And there's one instruction for the Israelites. The instruction for the Israelites, Joshua chapter 6, verse 16. On the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So you're not supposed to take anything. Everything that's in it, the city itself, everything that's in it, it's devoted to the Lord. It's like a tithe. You're going to give it your first fruits. You're coming into the promised land. First part, I want you to give it back to me. So you acknowledge, I gave it to you. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live. Because she hid the messengers whom we sent. All of Canaan had heard about the God who had delivered out of Egypt. And now he had done another sign. Hey, remember that what I did? Part of the waters, just part of the waters, come through the Jordan, they're coming, warning came, only she listened, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make them, and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it, okay, but here's what happens, and so I want you to get this, if you don't get anything else today, you need to know this truth, that sin minimizes its consequences, okay? and it hides its collateral damage. A positive way for me to say that to you is this, that sin is never secret, it's never solo, it's never insignificant. Never secret, never solo, never insignificant. And so what happens next is they go to this other town called AI, which before it was an app that would write speeches for you and do your homework. Sorry, if your kids didn't know that already. (laughs) What? Um, It was a town. This town's really small. In fact, it's so small that when Joshua sent his recon team into Ai to give them a report back to what to expect when they got there, the report was, you don't need to send everybody. We got this. So we don't send everybody, but it goes really bad. They lose 36 men, 36 fathers, husbands, sons. They're killed, those families are torn up. And Israel turns their back and flees from Ai. In an honor-shame culture, to turn your back and run from your enemy when you are the ones that we're attacking, is very humbling. Then in Joshua chapter seven, you see that Joshua falls on his face and he says to God, here's a paraphrase, you can go read it yourself. Uh, why are you letting your name be treated this way? And then God says, get up. Why are you on your face? Go tell the people to consecrate, to set themselves apart. They need to do some introspection, some reflection, and then hold them accountable. There's sin in the camp. it's secret sin, and you're going to burn everything that's associated with it. Uh, OK? Joshua does it. Talk about leadership. Joshua tells him you guys consecrate yourselves, and then um, tomorrow, every man of every house is going to come answer to me. I'm going to ask you about your sin. Uh-huh? You decide whether you're going to tell the truth, not tell the truth. No sin is secret. No sin is solo, and no sin is insignificant. And so what happens, I'll read to you Joshua chapter 7, as he's going through the clans and the tribes, and there's some of that, that just for the sake of time, I won't read you, but Joshua chapter 7, verse 18, it says, and he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. So it didn't start with what he did. It starts with what was happening in his mind, and his heart. When I saw among the spoils, a coat. Just a coat. Just a coat? A coat? I want that, I just want, it's just one time. Look, don't touch. Who's really going to be hurt? No one has to know. Sin minimizes its consequences. The coat, and he talks about some money, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, and then I coveted them. What happens first in our heart and our minds, then happens physically, and I took them, and see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent, the silver underneath, and we think we can hide it. First of all, no sin is secret because God knows everything and He sees everything. No sin is solo. You think about Aiken's sin here 36 men have already died. A whole nation has been humbled. What's about to happen is his whole family, him, his wife, his kids, are going to be killed. All of Israel stones them to death. What happens after this is not that Joshua's like, we all make mistakes. It's all right, Achan. We'll get the next town. No. All of Israel stones them to death. Then they do what God said burn the place, and then they easily overtake Ai. You say, well, my sin doesn't lead to anybody dying. Nobody's dying. Listen, every sin. It's like when you throw a rock in the lake and you see the ripple effect. Every sin has a ripple effect. When David sins, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He kills one of his friends, Uriah. And then God confronts him. Because God, if you're a follower of Christ, you're always either going to be convicted and confess your sin, or you're going to get caught. That's how God works. He's going to lovingly expose you. might be painful, but he'll expose your sin. And there's ripple effects of that as well for the sake of other people. And if you don't think it happens in the New Testament, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, go read it. And so here you've got, I was too proud of my heart. I thought I was the exception. It's just a coat and made a little bit of money and, it, and no one has to know. And maybe 36 people don't die because of your sin, but Jesus had to die for it. No sin is secret. No sin is solo. No sin is insignificant. So then they were battling against God when they went to AI. You can't win that battle. And God used their idols to expose their heart. And now we see it happening again. So we saw in chapter one, partial obedience. And there's a generation. Then we saw Othniel. Now here we are. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. But they cried out to God. And the good news of the sermon is the second point. When we cry, he always comes. When we cry out to him, he always comes. That's what we see next. Verse 14, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Oh, and by the way, where did Eglon set up camp? The city of Palms. The city of Palms is an interesting place in the Bible, it's also known as Jericho, not Miami Beach. Jericho is an interesting place, not only because the walls came down there, but it's a strategic spot for battle. It doesn't say that Eglon rebuilt it. Later there's a guy that rebuilds it and fulfills a prophecy that Joshua said anybody who rebuilds it is going to be cursed on their firstborn. Eglon's there. He's setting up camp there. And what Israel's doing is building walls between them and God. But when they call out, but it took 18, ye- 18 years. That's a long time. How long, how much pain, how much idolatry, how much wickedness, how far do you have to get before he gets through to your heart? 18 years, but then they cry out. The city of palms, huh, where the walls came down, then you cry out. It's interesting, I didn't tell the first service this, but... One of the things that was striking to me, um, we were in Israel in 2020 with a group of folks. And there's always different moments, you know, and just going on that geography tour of Israel. And uh, I was there this last time. And remember Jesus is tempted in the desert for 40 days? The desert where they believe that happened is not far from Jericho. And one of the things that you learn sometimes when you see this stuff is how close the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's almost like you read it and it's like, oh, those those really hard to pronounce names and lands. And now here we are and it's like Galilee and we can figure that out. Jerusalem's not far from Jericho. I remember getting struck. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit just speaks to your heart and it wasn't a Bible verse or anything. It was just there looking where those walls had come down and then looking up and realizing, well, Jesus was tempted that day. So Jesus could have during his temptation. I don't know if this happened. The Bible doesn't say it. Looked down and been like, does he, as the Trinity, does he say, God, you took? Or does he say, we t- I took? I don't know. But remember by my power, I did that. He was tempted just like we are in every way. It's a struggle. Sometimes we need to be reminded of God's power. Here, Eglon's in the city of Palms. But the people cried out. Eglon, we're going to be told in a minute he's fat. The reason why we're told that he's fat is not because God's body shaming Eglon. Just so you know. It's not how the Bible works. It's a commentary on the culture that they're in. A culture of convenience and comfort. And Eglon thought that he was in the spot that he was because of his own work. Look how God must laugh at us when we try to steal his glory. And so God actually uses that to his shame. So he uses the idols of Israel to reveal their hearts and to be a thorn in their side. But then he uses this guy's arrogance to be his shame in just a minute. And his culture of, who else has a culture of comfort and convenience? Huh. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And God gave them four steps to clean up their act before they came back to him. Nope. That's not what this sermon is. When you cry, he comes. He's the deliverer. He's the one that does the transformation. It's not first I need to stop or first I better, and I don't know, I've got these other questions. When you cry, he comes. They cried out to the Lord and not them, the Lord. Now the Lord's the one who does the work. You cry, he works. You cry, he comes. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud. (laughs) And he's a pretty questionable character uh, when we start looking at him. So some people that have preached, you know, judges were the only people that God could call on. That's nonsense because they're very broken. We don't know if God's endorsing or not endorsing what Ehud does. We're just told it happened. And so be careful to not take everything in the Bible as, well, it happened in the Bible, so I'm gonna go do that. Everything that happens in the Bible is not, Prescriptive, sometimes it's just descriptive. Then deliver Ehud, the son of Gera. I don't know who Gera is, so I'm not gonna spend much time on that. Uh, the Benjamite. Listen to this, a left-handed man. I see my man, Todd over here, Todd, a left-handed elder. He was texting me yesterday, he's like, you gonna dog out the left-handers? No, I'm not gonna. How many of you here are left-handed? Just out kind of curiosity. You raised the wrong hand. What are you doing? No, I'm just kidding. If you're a left-hander, you know you live in a right-handed world. We've got a good chunk of left-handers in here. Uh, there's all kinds of stereotypes, and, you know, brilliant and creative and all that stuff. And I know some of y'all, but anyway, <laughs> you're brilliant and creative. Sometimes they're true and sometimes they're not. There's been a lot of bad stereotypes throughout the years. I used to tie kids' hands behind their back and tell them you're going to be right-handed because if you're not, then it's going to cause these problems. You're going to have these, all this stuff. And, like, we've looked at all that. and At that time, there's only th- left-handers only mentioned three times in the Old Testament. Only about 10% of our population um, is believed to be left-handed. It's a significant disadvantage when you're writing and your hand smudges the way that everybody else writes. <laughs> or you sit next to somebody and your elbows keep bumping each other, right? There's some, there's some disadvantages, but what everybody else sometimes thinks is a disadvantage, God oftentimes sees as an opportunity. Some people don't think that Ehud was just left handed but the little translation of the Hebrew is he was unable to use his right hand that he was handicapped we don't know but we do know that S- that Benjamite that he's a son of Gera a Benjamite a Benjamin means son of my right hand right hand in the Bible is a position of strength in our culture we say things like can you dance oh, you dance like you got two left feet that's not a compliment just so you know but you're my right-hand man. So left bad, right good. Okay, got it. Son of my right hand, a left-handed man. (laughs) We'll talk more about that next week, but this is not who Israel would have chosen and this is not who anyone would have expected. Is it because he's disabled? Is it because he's just left-handed? I don't know. But something's being said here very overtly to us. Son of my right hand, a left-hander, hello. The people of Israel sent tribute by him, maybe because he's not threatening. To Eglon, the king of Moab. Oh, so they've got to pay taxes or give gift offerings. Part of their oppression is to give honor to this idol-worshipping king. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up, verse 15, uh, then this, this Benjamite, Ehud, this left-handed man, they send tribute. And when Ehud, or here it is, no, verse 17, I'm sorry. And uh, Ehud presented the tribute, verse 17, to Eglon, king of Moab. And then look what it says. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Commentary on culture, not body shaming. But it's going to come into play in just a second when we get some more crass details that some of you wish your kids didn't hear. I'm just reading them the Bible, all right? When Ehud had finished presenting... Oh, the part that I skipped was where he makes a sword. I'm sorry. That's pretty cool. Hold on. Let me back up. Verse 16. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges... A cubit in length, so about 14 inches, just think that. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And so, think about that. If you were right-handed and you were going to hide a sword and put it on your left thigh. Left-handers, put it on your right thigh. So, maybe the guards didn't search him because he's handicapped. Or maybe they only searched the leg where any warrior would have their, sword, their weapon. Either way, this guy got in to a meeting with his enemy, the king, who he's forced to pay tribute to, armed. Maybe it's just a commentary on the Moabite culture and their comfort and convenience and laziness and they aren't searching anybody. But it appears that God is telling us his left hand, what many considered a weakness, was his asset. So he makes a sword, puts it on this thigh, comes in, gives the tribute, then he tells all of his people, all the other Israelites, you all can go, you're done here. When he had to finish presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself, so it was significant, it was big, one guy wasn't carrying it, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. It's appealing to his pride. This is just for you, king. Ah, I'm the king. I'm the only one that can hear this. So as a fat, lazy, comfortable, convenience-oriented king would do, he sends out his bodyguards. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, he had said, I have a message from God for you. Oh. He doesn't say which God. And so he arose from his seat. He had reached his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, thrust it into this belly. He doesn't pull it back out. Look what happens. And the hilt also went in, so all the way to the handle after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. All right. So now you got a picture of this guy laying in his obesity with crap everywhere. Um, Some of you use the new King James, his entrails are everywhere. The Bible is like, we try to make it polite. It's like, just read it. Crap. There's crap everywhere. All right. So, I mean, sorry, rubbish. It's all over fat guy. So what's the picture here? But I, but I thought that a, a sign of God's favor was financial blessing. This guy's loaded. Everybody's telling him a great, only in America. Only in America. Hmm. So this guy's laying there and the dung's out and God's not, by the way, a middle schooler. He's not just telling us gross details for no reason. <laughs> it's the gross as hell. That matters. It's part of the escape that Ehud, Ehud whether um, he's a committed follower of God or not, we don't know, but he is God's assassin here. This is a battle different than any of the other battles the judges perform. He goes in by himself. Then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked the door. Why? Because not an idiot. That's why he locked the door. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the door of the roof chambers were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself. Now, why would they think he's relieving himself? When you read the Bible, you can't smell what's happening. But if there's a large man with entrails... Rubbish, everywhere, dung, crap. It's because they've been there before. You don't have to serve the king. I mean, they probably thought, he's scrolling Instagram in there. Like, hey, just give me a second. That's verse 25, look what it says. And they waited, it doesn't say Instagram, but it says, and they waited till they were embarrassed. Man, what is he doing in there? They still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber. They took the key and they opened it. So their bodyguards, they got the key, they opened it. And there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped. He's basically James Bond in this story. Kills the king. Walks out. Bodyguards. Past the idols. And then all this extra time because God, now that they cried out to God, they're not fighting against God. God's fighting for them. Hmm. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sarai and Verse 27, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country. He was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. Let's be real clear who did this. It was God. So they went down after him. They seized the ford. They end up killing 10,000 men. There's also arguments about what does it mean, strong-bodied, able-bodied, stop, they all, big guys, like what was going on there, and But the point is that God won because when you cry, he comes. I remember, I don't remember how many years ago it was. I was in a small group. Um, Tommy McFadder was the leader. Tommy served as a deacon in different things in our church. He was my small group leader at the time. We were all about the same age uh, and stage of life. Uh, I think my oldest daughter was about seven or eight years old. And so we had four of them and they were all eight and under. And the small group was 17 adults all the same age and stage. If y'all are doing that, that's stupid. Just so you know, I've done it. It's not a good idea. Because we had 17 adults and about 5,000 kids. And so my wife and I would come and there's two adults and it's like two on one, just us. And then other people, and there's some people have more. It's like, oh, this is like, so it's probably realistic, like 50 kids. There's like 17 of us, 50 kids. We hired babysitters. If you were those babysitters and you still go to our church, wow, that's a miracle. Um, but we didn't pay you enough because there were too many kids. And so what would happen every week, every week, this is not like a one-time story, is that we'd be sitting there, Tommy would start open up the Bible, whatever the passage was, and say something. And then, boom, thud, crash. And one kid would start screaming. One would start screaming. See, one of my kids laughing. It's probably you. It was probably you. And then a mom, and it wasn't that the dads were like trying to be passive or lazy. It was like, we didn't know. Which kid is it? But the moms knew. So a mom would get up and go. It was like this sonar. Like, you know how dolphins talk to each other and we don't know what they're saying? It's like baby cry goes right from baby mouth to mom heart, like that lung. That's not that was because they were inside the body, because they fed them. I don't know why, but they just know. And all the dads are looking like, what? And eventually we're like, they got it. Because <laughs> the mom would come back. She'd be bouncing the kid, however big they were, eight or under, and bouncing the kid. And then another one, scream, buddy. And then the mom pop up, go get them. It's like they just knew when their child cried, they responded. That's how God is with his kids. He'll let you do. Oh, you think you know better than me? Oh, you think that you got it? All right. Romans chapter one. He does it in the New Testament too. And it messes up. Not just our relationship with God, all our other relationships. We talk about that passage for homosexuality. Yeah, it talks about that. They give up natural relations for unnatural. You think how twisted it'll get. But it also says, and kids won't obey their parents, and you're going to be Gossips and slanderers, and there's mallet. every because of your broken vertical relationship. There's a ripple effect in every horizontal relationship that you have. You don't think it's impacting anybody else? You got an intimacy problem with God? I promise you, there's an intimacy issue with other people. No sin is solo. No sin is secret. No sin's insignificant. But if you cry, He comes. So let's cry out to Him, Father. We come. I don't know what you've said to hearts. I know we've walked through this passage. I know I've made some points and said some things. But you have all these conversations going on in all these different hearts. Will you you keep that conversation going right now? I know we're going to sing a song in a minute, some of that. But I'm going to pray. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. But some of you here, you don't have a relationship with God yet. But he started to have you hear him. He started to speak to you. And you might think, but I can't believe in him yet because I, don't, I got this question or I haven't dealt with this thing in my life. Here's the, here's the truth. You cry out to him, he will come to you. He already sent his son, the deliverer, Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. And that's how you connect with him. But what about, you don't have to have it all figured out. He's speaking to your heart. Come to him. Listen, I don't have it all figured out and I'm a pro. I'm paid to study the Bible. Think so you're gonna have all the answers before you trust Jesus? no don't be so arrogant humble yourself and call upon him to be your deliverer your savior and he will come into your life he already came to this earth and died for your sins and rose from the dead he will transform you whether you're watching online whether you're in this room whether you're watching this six years from now he will transform your life you call he'll come and just admit your sin that you need a savior and that Jesus is the only savior that can deliver you and His promises to rescue you. Some of you, you know Jesus. I don't know what He's doing in your hard times all the time, but I know exactly what He's doing in your hard times all the time. Philippians 1:6. He promised to complete a work in you that He began, and He's still doing that work. I don't know what your hard times are. I don't know if you cause them, or it's a part of being around people that cause them. It's just part of being here. I don't know. But it's an opportunity for heart change. Is it because of your sin? I don't know. It's an opportunity for you to evaluate whether there is sin. Why don't you turn to him? Give him that sin. Ask him to to do what David says in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O Lord. Show me if there's any offensive way in me. Every hard time is an opportunity to evaluate our sin and our hearts. Cause or not, I don't even know if that's the most important question. He wants to do a work in you. What specific thing? I don't know but he does. Will you trust him? You don't get to negotiate. Will you surrender? Well, first I got, no, don't don't believe lies. Don't believe deception. That leads to disobedience, and that's ultimately painful. You call. He comes. He does the work. You surrender, and you do what he says. Then he leads you on the path of life, and maybe you've gotten off the path. Maybe you've got questions, and you want answers, and maybe you're asking the wrong questions. Maybe you're asking why questions and he's saying who and he's trying to reveal himself to you in the hard times. Maybe he's going to do the miraculous thing like he did with Bethany and heal and maybe he's not. I don't know. But our eyes are on you. you turn your eyes to him. And if you desire to continue to pray when Pastor Bryce starts to lead us, you, you stay in that posture of prayer. If you want to stand up and sing hallelujahs to him, you do that. I'm going to say amen. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at infosfchurch.com. At for additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.